welcome to SciGest, your fortnightly serving of digestible science from plant and food research. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Tom Moore and I'm the host for today. Today we have Dr. Brad Howlett, who is part of the Beneficial Biodiversity team. Brad has been on here before and I'm looking forward to hearing updates from their part of the world. So today to talk about the flies and the bees, the real estate agents of open plan surveys, we have Dr. Brad Howlett. Welcome to the show. Kia ora. For those that haven't listened before, could you give a brief overview about what this research program is about? Okay, yeah, so it's an MPI-funded program, um, a sustainable food fibre futures program, regenerative ag. So part of regenerative agriculture is looking at biodiversity and trying to make the most out of biodiversity on your farm. So our work is focusing on establishing native habitat on farm and what benefits that can give to a farmer. And we're looking at a range of farms um, in the Canterbury region. So that includes arable, dairy, sheep and beef farms. And it involves a number of partners as well. So... So your work is predominantly in the Canterbury area, on like the Canterbury Plains? Yeah, so this project um, is really focused on the Canterbury Plains, but there's been quite a lot of interest generated from other systems like orcharding. So we have a few other programs in the North Island where the focus is on pollination in particular. Last time you were on here, you started to develop a program. So your results are starting to come out now, is that right? Yeah, we're seeing some really interesting data coming through. So prior to starting, we knew that a wide range of insects provide services such as pollination and controlling insect pests, which are really great for farms. It's really good for resilience of the farming system. So we started off on quite a relatively low knowledge level of what insects contribute to these services and we are really quite astounded by the diversity of insects that are actually contributing on these farms particularly in a region that's so intensively farmed. To give the listeners an idea how many species would you typically get on the Canterbury Plains in such systems? In these systems if you take pollination for example The growers often rely on honeybees pretty much always. They pay money to get honeybees to pollinate their crops. We know that a range of insects can contribute to the pollination of crops, but their abundances are relatively low in most situations that a farmer can't rely on them. So what we've learned is not only that a very broad range of insects can contribute to that. But if you can get the numbers up, they can actually be a really sort of key dominant pollinator for the farmer. All right. So there is a range of insects. So do you get like non-native and native insects coming in together and they both come in? Are they both equally important in how they pollinate the plants? Okay. So one of the really cool things is that if you just take honeybees alone, we all know about honeybees and they pollinate crops. But, you know, if we're just relying on those, they may not be active if the weather's cold and cool. Some of these other insects we know will be active at times when honeybees aren't. So not only are these insects important for pollination and other services, they can actually be complementary to the honeybee. So if the honeybee's less active or it's just not performing very well in that crop, it's found a better crop somewhere else, these insects will be around and they'll be providing the pollination service. 
That's really interesting. So you can have insects that can tag out at various times in the year to fulfill that important function for um, farmers. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, you can look at the diurnal patterns during the day. That's the day patterns. And you can also look at during the season. So there's certain times of the year where insects are active, where honeybees, for example, in pollination, there may be other crops that the farmer can't control them staying in their crop. So they'll be off foraging on other crops. So these insects will be filling in these spaces that honeybee doesn't actually contribute at times. In general terms, if you have lots of honeybees, is it beneficial to have um, other insects there as well? Like, do they support each other to fulfill this role? Or perhaps is there like competition between different species of bees and um, flies, for example? In terms of a mass flowering crop, which we get in the Canterbury Plains, which our orchard crops are, what we need is as many pollinators as we can get. So there's been sort of studies that have looked at competition and have shown that honeybees in a native system may go for plants and displace the native bees, for example. So the native bees will start foraging on other things as opposed to the plant that they'd normally forage on. But in a cropping system where we've just got huge numbers of flowers, it just doesn't happen. We just don't have enough insects there to really be competing. Even though you'll see a lot of them, there's not really a displacement. And in fact, um, we see though that certain insects can interact together and there's papers that demonstrate that if we have a mix of honeybees and these other insects, then their efficiency can be improved. So honeybees may behave in an improved way in terms of the way they deliver pollen from flower to flower. Sometimes their rhythm goes off and that actually improves their performance because they're more driven to move between the right flowers for pollination to occur. That's really interesting. And was this kind of knowledge known before you performed this latest survey? Like what were the questions you were targeting in this current work? A number of these questions quite recently have been examined. So that competition between honeybees or, or the, the change in behaviour between honeybees and wild pollinators, for example, uh, was known in the last 10 years or so. So there were some good studies coming out about that. In terms of understanding the, the efficiency of these different insects as crop pollinators, it is also quite relatively recent, particularly for non-bee insects that we've really underestimated what they can do in a cropping system. We're building on knowledge that we know already to a point where how do we get them into these systems? What strategies can a farmer put in place to, to get these insects on their farms? How do you go about collecting this information? Do you go out and do a survey across the whole Canterbury Plains to work out this knowledge? Like, How does it look like for someone going in the field to go and collect insects in a native planting, for example? Okay, so with the funding we've, we've got from MPI, um, with our end users, which are various primary industries, so where we've got the arable through Foundation for Arable Research, sheep and beef farms, Sinlay, we can look at a whole range of these farms and because it's a regional program made up of a mix of farms, Canterbury is not just one type of farm, it's a mosaic of farms. We can understand the importance of these different land uses, landscape types to be able to make recommendations to each type that will 
build on each other. So the services from one farm to another can get benefits by understanding what's planting in, on their farms in particular. What is the area of your research? Say, for example, are you just looking at one particular mosaic patch that is a dairy farm, for example? Are you considering looking at neighbouring properties as well that have different crops on them and then how they both can interact and have the best uh, insect diversity that will benefit both plots? Exactly. So when we're looking at different farming systems, there's going to be certain species, certain pests that cross over and are important pests for both farm types, but they may be specific to one type versus the other. The problem that we have in a region with all of these different farming systems is that we can't just restrict our research to one farming type because we can't get an optimal outcome if the neighbours are doing something that isn't promoting or is a problematic to another farmer. So our approach of involving all of these industries, it means we can take the landscape at a whole and understand how it's all contributing to this diversity, which all of the farmers collectively can gain benefits from. When designing these kind of plantations, is it a build it and they will come, field of dreams kind of stuff? You build the plantations and hope the insects will arrive, like the dispersal of insects is homogenous throughout the whole plains. Or do you have to have like little fragments that bring them from certain places to other places to sort of bring them into an area? The more recent sort of direction in research in this space is to think of the combination of plants and how they flower over time. Do they attract the right insects that we're targeting? And then be able to look after those insects in terms of providing the floral and nectar resources so that a farm can support those insects through food sources such as um, by having a combination of plant species flowering across the time. Whereas if you just sort of randomly put in plants or you've got a really restricted range of plant species, then you may cause issues of, uh, I guess, a feast and famine situation where that can have big implications in the abundances of these insects. So we're focused Mm. on a mix of plant species that are targeting a diversity of species that we know about in terms of what their roles are on farming pollination and, and controlling insect pests. So would you kind of say that once the planting is in, that's kind of it in terms of like the involvement of the farm manager? Or is there like ongoing maintenance that's required to um, create or maintain the correct diversity of native species? Okay, so this is one area that we're still exploring. However, we already have a pretty good idea of the plant species that you can establish. And then what we're trying to do is monitor these over time to verify that that is the case. As plantings age, in terms of maintenance, there may be some sort of maintenance if plant species disappear that we need, or we need to think about how we can incorporate those in certain areas on the farm. But otherwise, with a native plant's that we put in to start with there's a lot of maintenance at the start uh, because of weeds but then after a couple of years they're they're pretty much there um, and do their thing sounds great could you give an idea of what type of species of plant you typically put in the mix yeah so we're trying to be as flexible as possible to fit into the farming system so in terms of 
if we take pollination again as an example, generally species that attract a, a real diverse range of insect species, they're called central plant species and they support a whole range of insect species that are valuable to the farmer for the pollination. If you've got a whole range of these insects, it means that they're all going to be working together, providing the complementarity, which is they're all foraging at different times and doing pollination at different times during the day, for example. So we need to incorporate those. We need to incorporate those plant species that are flowering at different times. So they've got temporal differences, but they're supporting those insects right throughout the period that their life cycles um, require. But we also got to consider things like you know, in a farming system, there's irrigation, there's um, other aspects that restrict a farmer to be able to put plants in and, and the type. I mean, a lot of farmers only have a strip along the fence line to be able to put native plants in. So these restrictions we need to also consider. And there may be opportunities that, you know, a plant mix that's great for pollinators, for example, doesn't have to be a, just a consistent mix. You know, you can have an equal mix in another location but fits the farming system better. So it might be drier in a location. Another location might be getting more irrigation, so you might be able to put different plants there. Um, that leads on to my next question, was like there's a lot of a push now for planting riparian vegetation around waterways. Like can this fulfil the same function? Can they these riparian plants also protect the waterways but also provide excellent habitat for diversity of native pollinators? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we're really interested in developing. A lot of the plants that suit certain environments, they're still plants that attract beneficial insects. So you have things like flax, for example, which is great for wetland areas. You've also got other species that sit on the sides, cabbage trees. and Yeah, carex as well. Yeah, yeah. Those plant species, we know that they attract pollinators. We know they also attract natural enemies that feed on nectar and pollen. So natural enemies are those insects that attack pest species that for the farm. So we can design plant species to fit wetlands anticipate what sort of services come out of those because of the plant species that they support. The farm is likely to have a whole range of habitat sort of zones, I guess. So there may be dry areas or wetter areas. And the mix of plant species, there's a lot of choice there to make or they may be restricted. Um, but we'll be able to anticipate what sort of services we can get from those as well as remnant vegetation. So understanding the insects associated with plants within the remnants allow us to get some sort of anticipated pollination or pest control service out of those habitats. That sounds great. And how do you go about generating knowledge in these farm systems? What process do you go through to collect the information to provide insights to farmers? Okay, so what we've developed is five key steps that you can follow. Firstly, know what insects you're targeting. So what are your pollinators that are going to provide the services? What are the natural enemies that are going to control pests? What are the pests themselves? So that's the first step. Once you know that, you can then move to the next step and look at what information is already there. And this can come from a, a wide range of sources. So it might be 
published literature, maybe grey literature, it may be databases, it may be farmers themselves who often know a lot about the pest species, for example, that you need to avoid promoting on farms. Once you have that information, you can start looking at gathering your own observations within that region. So what insects are visiting what native plant species, for example, that you may want to consider putting on your farm. Once you explore the various plant species that you're interested in, then you can develop something that we call an ecological network and look for the plant species that have the biggest support of beneficial insects but don't support pest species. From there, the farm itself has got land habitat types that are going to support certain plant species. The farmer is going to have limitation of what can go where. So using those limitations, design your plantings. You can then bring in other experts. Often indigenous knowledge can be really helpful in in understanding what plants were originally growing in those regions. Then once you've done all that, you can then just verify the service. You know, you can measure, are you getting better crop yields? Are you seeing more diverse insects on your crops? So they're the five key steps we see. And once you've got those five key steps, then you're ready to go to to put in your plants. Sounds complex. But once you've gathered that information, it gives you a lot of flexibility to go from there and across a broader range of areas and farming systems as well. Were there any surprises when going out and performing this research? Was there anything unexpected that you came up against? I mean, the biggest thing is the diversity that you can actually get on these really intensive farming systems. So Canterbury Plains has uh, less than 0.5 remnant vegetation remaining on it which is is 0.5% 0.5% less than 0.5% which is really low compared to most regions it is highly modified a very much a simplified landscape of broad acreage crops or pastures with a lot of exotic plants in so you wouldn't think it would be an environment that would support diversity, let alone bringing in diversity by planting out established habitats because insects need to find them and need to colonise those habitats. But we've been amazed by how many interactions we're seeing in terms of the range of insects that will uh, visit those native plants in these really sort of intense landscape systems. It's really encouraging that you know, you can actually generate a lot of biodiversity on these farms. Was there like a superstar, like a plant species that really outperformed relative to the other ones? I wouldn't say so, but I would say there's several that are are really great. Things like the hebes, like attract really diverse insects to the flowers. Uh, You've also got cabbage trees that are uh, also Kanuka, Manuka, uh, there's a whole range that you would call central plant species and if you can grow them, then they're usually in the mix that I would consider putting on a farm. Could you speak more about the benefits to yield increases? Um, what percentage of yield increase might you expect? Or is that the primary measure that you use to work out the benefits of these pollinators? 
For a farmer, it's yield increase. So how much yield can I get in that year? Have I got a pollination deficit, which is how we work out whether there's a pollination deficit. We'll hand pollinate and see what the seed is or the yield is versus just the natural pollination that occurs. And the difference in the yield is how much deficit there is. So that is a really primary thing that we're looking at in this project. Our results are are highlighting that if we put crop plants near the native plants, we are getting much less yield deficits than if we put them along a bare fence line where there's nothing surrounding them. In terms of pests and natural enemies, what we're finding is that pests will attack our kale plants that we're using as our model crop, but we're seeing higher parasitism of the pests near native habitats. What has been your partner's um, feedback on, on your work? Like farmers out there seeing how this affects their crops in real time on the field. Like what has been their observations and feedback? In terms of our partners, they're really hungry for information. Our governance group members, which are generally the bodies of these farmers so and the councils, they all deal with farmers, so they're looking to extend that information out to farmers. So they're really hungry for information that we can deliver to them. But the farmers that we work with, that we put our traps and other experiments on their land, they're also really hungry for us to provide them information as it comes along. So the feedback is really great to see. We've also got an example of a farmer that put native plants on their farms. They didn't have to spray pesticides and they've recently retired and they've just bought a big property and and their desire is just to plant it all out in native plants. So it's almost like a bit of a bug, I think, that... Not only do people appreciate the potential services that they can get from native plants, but all of these other values come into play, the drivers to establish plantings, and some of those are aesthetic and guardianship and those sorts of aspects that seem to build when people experience putting plants on farms. That's fantastic. Moving into the future... What are the next steps? Are you looking to provide like an online dashboard tool that can help farmers go in and then design what native plants would fit best for their systems? Yeah, exactly. So what we're hoping to do is provide information to uh, the primary industries involved in the program so that they can report on their web pages. But a tool is something where... Not only can we design planting, so bringing in other experts that know about establishing habitat for a number of reasons, and often that might be restoration for particular areas, but what we would like to do is to be able to say, okay, not only can you do this for this reason, but this is what the service you can get. So it may well be something like showing the network of interactions that you're going to get that you can then play around with the abundances and uh, of the different species and see that network change. So you can get a value out of that network of, of what you can get on your farm. Would it be correct to say that Canterbury is a case study 
of what that could be used from around the country, bring in different regions that have similar kind of mosaic landscapes. What other systems are similar to Canterbury or those that you'd like to look into further and see if there are parallels and how far this knowledge you're generating here can be generated around New Zealand? So, you know, there's some areas like Hawke's Bay has got some aspects similar to Canterbury, a lot of land clearance, but there's other areas where we can potentially see where there's a lot more native vegetation it has some value in terms of natural enemies, pollinators, beneficial insects. What is that value? So by understanding this mix of plant species and the interactions that go on there, we'll be able to make predictions about that sort of remnant habitat and what it's worth in terms of some sort of economic value to the farm. Not only is it aesthetically really lovely, but it also provides services. And currently we just don't have that information yet so there's those aspects that can relate to orcharding systems dairy systems and of course what I mentioned natural systems as well so understanding those better and so do these native plantings also provide other benefits other than pollen and nectar yes these um plantings um will also support other aspects of the life cycle of the insects Take native bees, for example. So native bees are ground-nesting bees. In the Canterbury region, because it's so intensively farmed, a lot of the soils are really disturbed. So the native plantings is an area that supports undisturbed soils and bees nest in it. What do native bees look like? So native bees are about half the size of a honeybee, most of the species, we've only got overall in New Zealand 28 native bee species. The dominant ones that in terms of the number of species are Lyoproptus. Usually dark, there's one species that's quite orangey in colour, but you can tell them apart from honeybees by their size, so if they're smaller. They can be really abundant on certain plant species, but they nest in the ground. They're solitary ground-nesting bee they form aggregation, so you can generate big numbers of them in undisturbed soil. In an intensive farming system, the plantings there can be a really valuable refuge for nesting populations. So that's another really good benefit of native plantings that isn't associated with plants, but it's providing protection mm. to the soil. So is this performing a conservation role? Are they threatened, these native bees? Some species are rare, others are really common, but there's um, some species that actually we haven't collected since 1970s, so we actually don't really know the status of those. And there's one species, Lyoproctus nanui, which has been collected in agricultural lands. So there's a number that we're unsure of, but yeah, having that sort of habitat that's undisturbed soil that the bees can nest in is a really important thing to encourage on farms. Is there any other species that are just as good at honeybees as pollinating? Lots of insects are equally as good as honeybees, some are better. So if you take non-bee insects, uh, a drone fly, which looks very much like a honeybee, it's called a honeybee mimic, it is actually a lot better pollinator on certain hybrid crops because it Honeybees are very smart. They learn to have a preference for one 
variety over another. And in hybrid crops, where they're trying to get seed from one cultivar to the other, that's the way that they grow these. And one of them has a sterile line, one has a fertile line. Honeybees tend to develop a strong preference for one over the other in a lot of cases. Where drone flies, for example, just don't develop such a strong preference. So if you look at that, a drone fly can be many times more efficient pollinator than honeybees. So you would think, okay, honeybees are really important for pollinating everything, but honeybees just in some circumstances aren't that great a pollinator. Brad, I hear that you're really interested in getting farmers' feedback and you've put out a survey. What has been the response to this survey? Uh, So far, we've um, got quite a lot of feedback, Uh, not quite to 100 yet, where our target is to get over 100 people to fill in the survey. But the information that we're gathering shows quite a bit of knowledge around the importance of insects in providing beneficial services on farms. A lot of farmers actually know that non-bee insects as well as bee insects um, provide important services in terms of pollination and also that a range of insects are, are valuable in controlling pest species. So that's what's coming out so far out of the surveys but we would love to have more people fill it in so we can get well over the 100 mark. And with that survey, we also will send information if you want in terms of the the results that we're getting through this project. That sounds great. A great plug for the survey. I think you'll find that down in the podcast notes. Uh, Brad, thank you for coming along on the show today. It's been great to have you on board for the second time and hear about your interesting work in beneficial biodiversity. And thank you out there for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcast, please check out our SideJazz podcast page or subscribe to our channel in iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. And don't forget to post a review and rate this podcast. Ma and farewell. Until next time.